John chapter 2 is all about the very first miraculous sign that Jesus did in his ministry. And you might be thinking, if, you are, if you're wondering, if you hung around church at all for a little bit, you might be thinking, Jesus, why didn't you do something a little bit more profound? Why didn't you immediately raise Lazarus from the dead? The first thing you do, come on. We all have to agree that the very first time of God needs to be something, new things going on, and I, it, it distracted me. Did y'all pray that I wouldn't be distracted? I don't, we're going to have to go back. We're going to have to go back. All right. Uh, but you know what I'm saying? Why, why didn't Jesus do something a little bit more, uh, maybe even theatrical, you might be thinking that. But uh, let me point out this. This is a sign that is always pointing to who he is and not just an overt sense of power. It's, it's, it's not just, he's, Jesus isn't a magician here. He didn't say, oh, okay, uh, let me, I'm the son of God. I'm the son of God, so I'm going to do something um, miraculous. Let me turn, you know, that basketball goal into a giraffe. Boom. Uh, that, that would reveal that he had power over stuff, right? It would reveal that he was pretty, um, pretty transformative. But no, everything that Jesus did, and in fact, our entire sermon series is uh, over the, the gospel of John is so that you may know, so that you may believe, that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God who takes away the, uh, the sins of the world. But the very first thing that we see here is in verse 11 that this is a sign. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Canaan of Galilee, in thus manifesting his glory. And manifested his glory. So we need to understand why. Why did this manifest his glory? Because everything that John is writing in this book is for a very specific purpose. John could have written a whole lot of stuff. And in fact, he says it at the very end in John chapter 20, which is kind of the reason why we named uh, this whole sermon series so that you may know. John chapter 20 verse 30 says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So you see that every single thing that we see here in the text, every single thing that we see in John is pointing us to who Jesus is, to who Jesus is in a really powerful way. So I want to point out three things, three things today that, uh, that this text is really revealing about Jesus. Because we have a lot of uh, symbolism in this text today. And not all of the Bible is symbolism. A lot of the Bible is just straightforward narrative. A lot of the Bible is history that we need to try to understand. Um, and a lot of times you're like, oh, man, what is, why was this written in there? Or why was this written in there? It's like, well, most of the time it's just because that's what happened. Not everything in the Bible is an allegory. But there's a lot of symbolism in this text today. And so I want to point out three things that really helps identify who Jesus is that are symbolic. Number one, the ceremonial jars. We'll talk about that first. Number two, kind of his cryptic um, response to his mother and what's going on with that, which a lot of you, whenever you read it, you're like, oh, what's going on with Jesus there? And then number, two, number three, I want us to talk about the wine and what the wine signifies in relationship with our Lord, okay? So, number one, what's going on with these ceremonial bins? Look at verse six. Verse six says this, whenever Jesus was called back to 
um, do, do, the, do the sign. It says, now there were six stone water jars, um, therefore the Jewish rites of purification, each holding about 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some water and take it to the master of the feast. And he took it, and when the master of the feast had taken it, uh, tasted the water, it now had become wine. Now it become wine. And so what we see right out of the gate is Jesus is doing something with these ceremonial bins that were for Jewish rites of purification. Now, the whole reason why it was a big deal that the wine ran out have gotten kind of out of control today, a little, a little bit extravagant, a little bit too much, maybe spending too much on flowers over here, maybe spending too much on videography over here, or, you know, like, do we need a video? Do we need a highlight reel? Do we need to see everything? Like, there's a lot going on with, but, listen, I think we are actually downplaying what weddings used to be, especially within this culture. So a wedding during this day involved the whole village, uh, every, everyone in the town, everyone was looking forward to it. And it was a feast that probably went on for at least three, if not five days. At least three, if not five days. And this is an honor and shame culture. And what, what that, a lot of you know what that means, that in an honor and shame culture, uh, it would have been a big deal. It would have been a big deal for the wine to run out. Why? Because the wine represented the joy of the party. The wine represented uh, everything moving forward and keep it still going. And so it would have brought a lot of shame onto the family if on day two the wine just ran out. It's like, you're supposed to throw this party. You're supposed to throw this feast. You invited the entire village. This is an honor and shame culture. There would have been shame on this family, on this family that, threw the, that was throwing the feast that only lasted two days instead of, you know, the normal three to five. And this is how Jesus started his ministry, keeping the party going just a little bit longer. So this is, this is really interesting, but we need to understand what is going on, what is going on with these ceremonial bins? What is exactly going on? Because these ceremonial bins were, like, like it said, were for purification, purification rites. What's going, on, what's going on with that? Well, if you know anything about your Bible, you know that the Jewish people were desperate, were desperate to make atonement for their sins. They knew that they were not right before God Almighty. They knew that they were not right before Yahweh. And so they had all these different things that they had to do. They had all these different things, different purification rites, different ways of washing, even their utensils, different ways of washing their hands, washing their bodies, so that whenever they went and worshiped before God, they wanted to be made clean. They wanted to be made clean. And what Jesus is doing here is he is revealing a little hint, revealing a little hint about what he is all about by saying, whenever I bring joy, whenever I bring the joy, it's going to come through me making purification. Me making purification of my, of, of your sins and of my sins. Because that's the number one thing. Listen, I know you and I, I know you and I get our theology all messed up all the time. We, we get it messed up by country music. I remember in uh, 1998, there was a, there was a, who was it? It was Mark Wills. Do you remember the song, uh, Don't Laugh at Me, uh, from 19, any, anyone in like mid-30s? All right, Don't Laugh at Me, okay, thank you. Uh, a lot of us got really bad theology from that song. It was like, don't laugh at me, don't call me names, don't get your pleasure from my pain. Um, in God's eyes, we're all the same. One day, we'll all have eagle's wings. And so I'm just like, 
I just believed it. Uh, hook, line, and sinker, you know? The theology of the, this country music song, I guess one day I'm going to turn into an angel whenever I die. And most of our culture would be like, yeah, that's, t- that's totally right. Totally right. Mark, Mark Wills said it. He said it in a hit country song in 1998, so it's got to be true. You know, you, you need to listen to this country song. It's teaching us good, song, good sound theology. And, and the silly thing is, um, no, absolutely not. The, the, uh, the, we get all of it. We like to pick and choose all this weird amalgam of, uh, of things to try to fit into who is this God? Who is this God? And the number one things that we need to remember, remember, is theology comes from the Bible not country music, right? <laughs> and, and we need to remember that the primary thing that we need, the primary thing that we need is a covering over our sin. A covering over our sin. And so remember these ceremonial bins because they're going to come up. Um, why even mention that they were so ceremonial bins unless they were significant? Why even mention it? So hold on to that thought and let's move on to this very strange very strange interaction that Jesus has with his mother, okay? Jesus is engaging with his mother, verse 4, and it says, and Jesus said, he said, hey, did you hear? They're almost out of wine, and it's day two. This is a, this is a trouble. This is problem. It's day two, and Jesus, what does he say? Woman, I don't know if he said it in that tone, but that, I'm just reading it. It says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, this might be the point to where you say, now, Cody, are you going to tell me that in the Greek, this is like a that woman doesn't really mean woman, and it's not really as cold as it sounds? No, it's as cold as it sounds, okay? There's not a softer landing in the original language or anything like that. No, this is, this is as stark as it sounds right here. Jesus is responding to his mother in public, in this way, in this way. So what's going on? What's going on? Because basically this is what's going, uh, this is what this means. Uh, He says, my hour has not yet come. That's a non sequitur, right? That's interesting. Because what's so interesting about this is, listen, every time that John in the entire, in his entire gospel talks about the hour of Jesus, it's always talking about his death. It, every single time, it's talking about the hour, the hour, the hour has not yet come. When Jesus mentions it, he's talking about his crucifixion. He's talking about his crucifixion. And then all of a sudden, he's at this party. Everyone's, everyone's having a good time. There's a rumor mill that's going on. His mother comes up to him and says, woman, I'm not ready to die yet. What's going on with Jesus? What's going on? We need to figure this out. Because you imagine Mary's like, Okay, <laughs> what does that have to do with anything? But let's, let's dig in and let's try, to, let's try to understand it. Why does this wedding feast, why does this wedding feast make him think about his death? Well, let's first, let me uh, kind of present this in a very personal way. If you're in this room and you're single or you've ever been to a wedding while you're single, what happens sometimes whenever you're at this wedding? Any wedding at all, the bride's walking down or any moment during the ceremony or when someone's singing the song or something, are you super engaged? Are you super pumped about what's going on there? Or is your mind drifting a little bit? Your mind drifts, right? And what do you think about? You think about your wedding day. You think about who's my bride going to be? 
You think about who's my husband going to be. And so if you, if you look out in the crowd, and I've done um, a couple of weddings at this point, and you look out of the crowd, not everyone is super engaged in the ceremony. Some people are looking off into infinity, absolutely into infinity. What are they doing? They're, they're, they're dreaming about their wedding day. They're dreaming about their wedding day. And I think what Jesus is doing here is he's dreaming about his wedding day. You say, Cody, uh, that was a myth. Uh, the whole Mary Magdalene thing, he, he never got married. I was like, oh, yes, oh, yes, he did, but not to Mary Magdalene. See, Jesus was immersed in the Old Testament. And whenever God related to his people, he related to his people in multiple different ways. One of the ways that he related to his people is, I am like the good shepherd and you are the sheep. I am the king and you are my servants. And in a lot of places, especially Hosea, you know what he says? He says, I am like the bridegroom and you are my bride. I desire you. I desire for for you as a husband desires for his bride. And what Jesus is doing, he's doing what you and I do whenever we're at weddings. Remembering, looking forward into the future and thinking about his own wedding day. I can prove this because Jesus in in Matthew chapter 9, he calls himself the bridegroom. And Matthew set this up. The Pharisees came like, uh, you know, John the Baptist and the other Pharisees' disciples. Why aren't you doing all these things? Uh, You're not very spiritual, Jesus. Your disciples aren't very spiritual. And look at how he responds. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? See, Jesus knew exactly what the Old Testament was talking about. That God was going to come for his people like a bridegroom comes for his bride. And look what he says. He says, and I'm him. I am him. And the Bible talks all about this in Revelation chapter 21. At the very end of how this whole thing shuts down, it says, And I saw the holy city, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, which represents his bride in other ways, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. See, you and I, you and I, we mean something to this bridegroom. We mean something to this bridegroom. And so Jesus Jesus was caught up in thought, saying, I, I think whenever Mary, <laughs> Mary walked up to him, he was, knee, he was looking a million miles away, and he was thinking about his wedding day for his bride. And so he said, dear mother, if I want to go to my wedding day, I know I have to go to the cross. That's why. He has such a stark, cold response to his mother right here. I know what it's going to take. I know what it's going to cost for me to be able to see my bride adorned the same way that this bride, this, this husband saw her, his bride adorned. I know what it's going to take. And so whenever Mary comes up to him, he just says, what do you, stop bothering me. I'm overwhelmed at what it's going to take for me to go get my bride. And so we see such... That's why we see such the cold, cold answer. And listen, that's why we see Jesus doing this miracle, doing this miracle in ceremonial jars. You see, I think Jesus has a different relationship than you and I have with our mothers. All right, sometimes my mom will ask me to do something, not so much today, but especially whenever I was a teenager under their household. Cody, you need to do this. Cody, you need to take out the trash. Cody, you need to take out the trash. Like, oh, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy. Okay, fine, I'll go do it. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. I don't think his, his mom's like, hey, 
uh, you need to do a miracle, you need to do a miracle, you need to do a miracle. And he's like, no, 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 fine, no. He's the king of the universe. He's doing this for some reason. He's not like you and I. He's not responding to his mother the same way that you and I respond to our mothers whenever we get asked a question. No, he is, he is out there. He is looking towards his, his own ceremony. That's what, he does, that's what he is craving and desiring and thinking through, and his heart is heavy. It is heavy right here. And so that's why we see the ceremonial jars. Because he immediately goes and he sees them and he says, the only way that I'm going to be able to get my bride is I'm going to have to make purification for sins. That's why he grabs that. And so he's, he's just, he's caught up in it. And you say, Cody, Jesus doesn't really get stressed out. So why, why are you presenting him in, in, in this light right now? Listen, listen. I, can, I agree that whenever he was on the cross and whenever he was on his way to the cross, he was calm, cool. He, he was like a sheep led to the slaughter. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't considering the cost all the way up. He was considering the cost all the way up. Which brings us to the last question. What's the big deal about the wine? Why is this whole thing about the wine? Why, why was this his inaugural thing? Well, let's see what it points to. Back in those days, uh, you didn't drink wine from a glass. You drank it from a cup. And whenever Jesus was on the same day, on the same day right before his crucifixion, he brought up the cup of wine in two different settings. Sign to us, God's wrath, that he knew he had to drink. He knew he had to drink. In the Old Testament, it was always the cup it was always a cup that represented the, the sins of the people, that it had to be poured out somehow. It had to be taken in. It had to be absorbed in something else. The cup of God's wrath had to be atoned for. And what did Jesus pray in the garden? Lord, if your will, if you, if, if you can will it, can this cup pass from me? Yet not my will, but your will be done. And you know how God the Father met him right there? Silence. He met him with silence. He said, you know the plan. The plan from the foundation of the world. Go get your bride. Go get your bride. And there's another cup, though, that same day. Earlier that day, whenever he was taking the Lord's Supper. And he changed. He changed the Passover uh, ceremony, and he said, this is the cup of my blood. That in this cup, I will make atonement for your sins. I will make atonement for your sins. And so both instances, he was talking about an allusion to the wine, and we see the cup of God's wrath here, and we see a cup of wine that was going to make atonement for our sins. You know what this means? You know what this means for you and for me? Jesus has to drink the cup of cursing so that you and I can get the cup of blessing. Jesus has to die in the dark so that you and I can be welcomed into the eternal feast, the feast of festival gathering that will go on, that has no end, the feast that you and I were made for. Yesterday, Stephanie and I drove by, drove by a party, and my heart started racing, drove by a wedding at First Presbyterian. I said, I want to go to that. Why do we all want to go uh, to, to the next party? Why do we all want to dress up and feel like there's something to this? Because we are made for a real feast. 
We were made for a real party. We were made for this. And what Jesus is saying in this passage is if I drink this cup, I will grant you. I will give you the gift. I'll give you the gift of joy. I'll give you the gift of joy. This is why. This is his very first, very first sign to us. You want to know why? Because Jesus is saying, I'm the Lord of joy. You want to know why I'm coming? I'm coming to give you life, which is truly life. Life found in God, in God alone. This is what Jesus, this is why Jesus came. And if you're here in this room and you just said, oh, you know, I thought he just came for like the eternal life thing and I just have to give him a little bit of, a dash of obedience over here and if I just give him a little bit of obedience and if I, I throw a couple of dollars in the offering plate and if I, if I do, if I, follow along in this and kind of learn the lingo of Redeemer Church, memorize the values, gospel-centered, disciple-making family, then maybe he will let me in so that eventually he will leave me alone. No, you've completely missed it. You completely missed it. Following Jesus is not like being Angela from the office. You know who Angela is? The number one caricature of of Christianity in our culture. Stub nose, never, always saying, that's not funny, you know. Crossing her arms, crossing her arms and everything, and, and it's just just really upset all the time. No one likes her, but that's what it takes. That's what it takes to get eternal life. Our culture is telling us no. Jesus is saying right out of the gate, "I'm the Lord of joy. I have come so that I can welcome you into the feast, the feast that you were made for. You know it, Redeemer Church. Look at me. You know it. This is what you were made for, and it is only found through Christ." In Christ alone. He has come to bring real joy. He's the real Lord of the feast. He's the real Lord of the feast. Listen, listen. I've been to several weddings, and I get a really great vantage point whenever I get to officiate a wedding. Uh, photographers, I know y'all think y'all have a good spot. I have the best spot in the, in the whole place. I'm right there behind. I'm right there, behind, and I get to see the bride come down absolutely every single time. Stunningly beautiful. Because I, I, I don't know what girls do, but I guess it takes so long to plan a wedding because you're always trying to plan how much makeup do I need and, like, what am I going to do with my hair? How am I going to cover all of these imperfections? Uh, not, so it, it, this is all I'm trying to say. <laughs> I was just digging a hole. I was like, got to get out of this, got to get out of this. Um, maybe that's what's going on. Because every single time, no matter what that woman looks like in reality, shouldn't have said that, she is stunningly beautiful. Stunningly beautiful. And and I remember when my bride was walking down, it took everything within me not to just run out there and go get her. I can still see it in my mind's eye today. Just to go get her. She was so stunningly beautiful. She's still super beautiful today. I don't know where she is, but she's super beautiful. Just look at her. Um... But every single time, every single time that happens, man, it, I feel like the groom is just bursting with how do I, I'll do anything for that girl right, right now. She's so, she's so absolutely beautiful. And here's the thing, here's the thing. Do you understand what it means when Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom? It means that when Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom, it means that he's looking at you out there. And he's bursting forth. He says, I can't wait. I can't wait to go grab her. I can't wait to go get her. And listen, it means that the atonement that he made 
did cover over all the imperfections, did cover over everything. And you are spotless and clean. You don't have to strive. You don't have to earn it. You don't have, there's nothing you can do. Nothing you can do to add to the beauty that Christ has made you through the sacrifice of his blood in your place. There's nothing you can do to add. And then he says, I'm going to get you. And the gospel is, I already did. There's nothing that Jesus hasn't done for you in your place. He atoned for the number one thing that we need. Cover overing all of our sins and his blood did that. His ceremonial washing did that. And this is our God. He is cover over all of us. Does that produce joy in your heart? Because listen, listen, if that doesn't produce joy in your heart right now, if the condition of your heart is I've never thought about my relationship with Jesus, I've never thought about my relationship with the Lord as something that manifests and springs up joy within my heart, then listen, this is going to be straightforward. I promise you you're not a Christian. You've made Jesus into something else. Something else to where it's Angela from the office. i got to give him a little bit of obedience. i got to dash a little bit of stuff over here so that I guess I can go to heaven someday. Listen, he's the Lord of joy. The very first sign that he wants to give to you is this. I can welcome you into the feast, a festival gathering, the feast that you were made for. Does this thrill you? Does this thrill you? Does it transform you? Does it make you alive? Does it make you alive? Because, because if it doesn't, if it doesn't, or let me, let, me, let me say this. If it has in the past and it's not right now, what you need to do is you need to draw on, draw on the hope, the hope of the resurrection. The hope of the eternal resurrection, the resurrection in your place and the resurrection of the culmination of the saints. Whenever all of the earth, it says, is screaming and desiring the culmination of this, the gathering of the bridegroom coming in for the, this, the ultimate wedding that's going to take place at the end of all of history that ushers us into eternity. You need to draw on that knowledge of future glory to help you in your present disillusionment. That's what, you need to, that's what you need to pray for. Because Jesus calls us to be joyful. The word of God calls us to be joyful. I think it's the spirit. I think he's, we should manifest all of them, but he says love. He talks a lot about love. What's number two? That we should manifest joy. And I think we have so many, so many joyless Christians right now. Do you know that in 2021 and 2022 or 2020 and 2021, this decree to be joyful has not ceased, even though it's been a hard couple of years. Listen, you know what's easy to do? It's easy to talk and complain about stuff. It seems to be the number one way that we get connected in our society. Uh, Ah, you know, my boss, this, you know. Ah, long line at McDonald's, this, you know, whatever. Whatever. What do we do? We, we try to talk about things that are um, just negative all the time. And what does the word of God call us to in, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9? Whatever is good, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, whatever is commendable, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things in the God of peace will be with you. We are to think. We are to 
We are to appropriate the good news of Jesus into our lives to help us be filled with joy so that we can understand why he came in the first place. He came so that you and I can be filled with delight. With delight. What's the number one? I'll leave you with this. How do we do this? How do we do this? Number one, it's my only point. Live a life of gratitude. Find things to be thankful for. I heard it said recently that uh, if you paid all the scientists and engineers in the entire world to create a human hand out of just the resources, you gave them trillions and trillions of dollars just to create the human hand, a human hand that could move like this, that had blood rushing through it, that, that formed calluses on your fingers whenever you started to learn how to play the guitar. To, to, to function just like a human hand would. You could give them a decade and trillions and trillions of dollars and they couldn't do it. And God Almighty has given you two of them for free. For free. Are you thankful for that? Or are you constantly looking for things to be negative about? Are you constantly, are, are, are you appropriating your life? What do you talk to your kids about? Are you always down on them about the things that they're not doing right? Or are you looking for things? Are you looking for things to build them up? Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is good. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Listen, Romans 1 tells us this, that in the garden, you know why everything broke? Because they weren't thankful. They weren't thankful. Are we thankful for the little blessings that God has given us? Are you thankful for the biomechanics that are in your ankles? Are you thankful that God has given you resources? Are you thankful that you're not hungry right now? I tell you what, if we want to make disciples as a community of faith here, the number one easiest way that you can make a disciple to where people ask you that first Peter 3.15, I always give a reason for the, uh, for the hope that you have in Christ Jesus, but do so with gentleness and respect. Be thankful about everything in your life and talk about it. Have a jovial di- disposition in life. As you're engaging with people, as you're engaging with your neighbors, always be, always be looking for things to be thankful about. And guess what? Guess what? The joy will come after that. The joy will fill, uh, um, will fill your hearts through the Holy Spirit's power after that. So that's my call today. Do we understand who Jesus is? Do we understand that he's Lord of the feast, that he's made for the feast, and he's the only bride, and he delights in you, and he runs after you, and he's done everything to make sure that you're ready for that day? Let's be thankful for him. Will you pray with me?